Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. And speaking of 22, it was right at 22 years ago in a large field outside Memphis, Tennessee, where a large crowd of people, some 40,000 strong, mostly college-age students, gathered for a Christian conference. And on one particular foggy day, as the crowd sat in the wet grass throughout the field, facing the makeshift stage that had been built, one preacher stood up and gripped their attention with these words. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know a few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ or a high EQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You just have to know a few Great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. But he goes on and says, I know that not everybody in this crowd wants their life to make a difference. There are hundreds of you, he says. You don't care whether you make a lasting difference for something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a good job with a good wife and a couple good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends, a fun retirement and quick and easy death and no hell, if you could just have that, you'd be satisfied, even without God. That, he says, is a tragedy in the making. And then he illustrates his point this way. He says, three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Eliasson and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow a medical doctor pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes give way. Over the cliff they go, and they're gone. Killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service, to the perishing poor for the glory of Christ two decades after almost all their American counterparts had retired? No, that was not a tragedy. That, he says, is a glory. He goes on, I tell you what a tragedy is. 
I'll read to you from Reader's Digest what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. That, he says, is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you. Don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you. Don't buy that dream, he says. The American dream. A nice house. A nice car. A nice job. A nice family. A nice retirement. Collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. Here it is, Lord. My shell collection. And I've got a nice swing. And look at my boat. He pleads, don't waste your life. Some of you have already realized those words were spoken by John Piper in probably what is his most famous sermon ever and perhaps one of the most moving and influential sermons of our generation. And the entire emphasis of that message was to call the men and women of God to look up from the treasures of this world to see the glory and the greatness of the God of heaven and the greatness of the gospel and the word that he has given and the urgency of the message he has called us to preach and to lay every part of our lives down at his throne for his service and for his glory because he is worth it. And that is very much the message of the life of Abraham that we see illustrated in Genesis 22 before us today. The message I want us to see is a very simple message. I want us to see four simple truths about God in this passage. Four simple truths that will show us not only can we lay our lives down at His throne for His service and for His glory, but we must. And we have every good reason to do so. I want to share with you four important points, four important truths about God. The first one is going to seem a little odd to you because it helps us deal with the question, why don't we lay our lives down before Him? And then the rest will deal with why can we. The first point I want you to see, the first truth about God that I want you to see is that God's leadership is perplexing. It sounds like an odd way to start, I know, but that is addressing the elephant in the room. That is addressing the, the, the feeling that every one of us has had at some point and why we often are hesitant to lay our lives down at the feet of God. Because his leadership is perplexing. There are times when we're not just scratching our heads, but we're throwing our hands up in utter confusion because of the chaos that we think our lives are in. And because God has brought things into our lives that we don't understand and we don't like, and we don't know why he, he insists on doing it that way. God's leadership 
is perplexing, and Scripture acknowledges that. And I want us to begin looking at this chapter by going all the way to the end to see a perplexing revelation that closes out this chapter and seems a little bit out of place. Look down at verse 20. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Hesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. That's a point that will become important in later chapters. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gehem, Tehash, and Maacah. Now that might seem like a paragraph that's out of place. It's really serving as a transition from the life of Abraham to the life of Isaac and Jacob and, and so on. From this point forward, Abraham's going to fade from the spotlight. He's still around for a few more chapters, but from here on out, Isaac and Jacob are going to start taking center stage. And so this is a transitional paragraph, but it's also an odd one thematically because it presents a, 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 a weird contrast between Abraham and his brother Nahor. Abraham's the one that God said, I will give you descendants and I will bless the nations through you and through your descendants and your descendants will be as the stars of the sky and as the sand of the seashore. But it's Nahor that we read about has 12 children. How many does Abraham have at this point? One. I know he has two, but Ishmael's been written out of the story now. Isaac is considered his one and only son. I want you to think about how perplexing that is. Abraham was 75 years old when God reached down to him by grace in Ur of the Chaldeans and pulled him away from his moon worship to follow him in a land that he did not know, to take on a new destiny he did not see, to take on a whole new way of life that he did not understand. And by faith, Abraham obeyed and he followed God. But he did not see the fulfillment of the promise for a son until 25 years later. He walked with God by faith, not by sight. 25 years. He's 100 years old when Isaac is born. 100 years old. He's been walking with God since, he's, since he was 75 years old. And now by the time we get to chapter 22, Isaac is likely in his teenage years. Abraham has been walking with God for well nigh 40 years. He has been holding on to this promise that God had made for descendants and for blessing for 40 years. And he has one son. While his brother has 12. That's odd, isn't it? Why would God do it that way? Because God is always up to much more than what we can see. But it gets worse. Because now we come to the first part of Genesis 22. And we see a crushing blow to the future. So we think of this one son. Look at verse, 20, or verse 1, chapter 22. After these things, that is sometime after, several years after, likely Genesis 20 and 21, God tested Abraham. 
Now, when God tests His people, be clear on this in your mind. It is not temptation to sin. God doesn't do that. But when God tests His people, it is for the purpose of strengthening their faith and proving their faith. That's what God is up to here. So God says to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He had said that other times before where he had had conversations with God and, and things were blessed in those conversations. I don't think Abraham could have anticipated what was coming next. Verse 2, God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And every one of you who's ever been a parent can sympathize with Abraham and feel the daggers going through your own heart as well, can't you? What? Come again, Lord? You want me to do what? And make no mistake, there was no uncertainty in what God had said. When he called him to make a burnt offering, he was calling him to an act of worship and devotion that demanded he personally kill his own son and burn him so thoroughly that there is nothing left but a pile of ashes. God had just pricked Abraham at the very center of what was most precious to him in all the earth. And God had just commanded him to do something that we consider unthinkable. And this is where many who profess God, who profess to walk with God, get off the trail. Isn't it? This is where many will sit back and make a natural assumption about God in their human wisdom. If God is doing this in my life, then it can only mean one or two things. Either He is no different than the gods I left 40 years ago, or He is not interested in keeping His word. In either case, I'm out. Is that how you would have responded? Why? Because however devoted we are or think we are to the Lord, we know that there are any number of things in our lives that we are happy to give up for Him. Yes, Lord, take this. Yes, Lord, take that. Yes, Lord, I'll go there. Yes, Lord, I'll do this. But we also know that we have a tendency to build hedges in our hearts. And there are certain things in that circle of hedges that are untouchable. This is why the leadership of God in His people's lives is perplexing. Because the leadership of God in the lives of His people involves God reaching beyond that hedge, pulling the branches away, putting his fingers on the treasure in the middle and saying, that is mine. And we don't like that. 
That's hard. It hurts. It means we have to sacrifice some things. It means we have to let go of some things and lay them down at the throne of God for his service and for his glory. And that's what God is doing to Abraham right here. It's not that Abraham idolized his boy. It's that this was the most important thing, the most precious thing to Abraham in all the world. He had waited his whole life for this. God had promised it. And now he treasured it, as well he should. But God was doing something to strengthen his faith. And interestingly enough, while we might think the two most natural assumptions at a command like this is God is just like the pagan gods. After all, child sacrifice, that's what the pagans do. Yahweh doesn't do that. In fact, he commands against it. Or, God's obviously not going to keep his word. He promised. He didn't just promise descendants. He promised that Isaac would be the one through whom those descendants would come. Lord, how's that possible if you're going to kill him? So you've either lost your credibility or you've lost your mind. Abraham makes none of those assumptions. Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. I don't see a single word of complaint from, from Abraham here. I don't see a single argument. I don't even see a single hesitation. Now, I, I would bet you that some of those things were swirling in his mind. He wouldn't be human if, if they weren't. But none of that's recorded here. None of that's recorded. Abraham obeys immediately. He rose early in the morning. The next day, he saddled the donkey. He made the provisions, and he set out on the journey. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. On the third day, men, women, listen to this. Three days, he walks with his son by his side. Isaac doesn't know what's going, what's going to happen on that mountain. Abraham knows what God has told him to do, and for three days he walks with his boy. Can you imagine that? If we hadn't turned around yet, certainly at some point on that journey we would have, right? Think of the anguish. Think of the perplexity. Think of even the temptation to offense. But then look at verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. That's why I think he's in his teenage years. He was able to carry a big bundle of wood. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. What do we see in Abraham's response here? We see a faith that none of us can describe. Look at what he said to the men when they left. You guys stay here. The boy and I are going to go worship, and we'll come back. Abraham didn't know what was going to happen on that mountain. All he knew was that God told him to kill and then burn this boy. 
And Abraham couldn't understand how this was all going to work out. But one thing we know, that one way or the other, whatever else happens on that mountain, they're both coming back. And when Isaac asks the question, uh, Father, haven't you forgotten something? Abraham, no doubt with a shaking confidence, but with confidence nonetheless, says the Lord will provide. Because he knows by this point in his life that when God commands, God enables. And when God calls, God provides. I find it interesting. We've already considered that the first thoughts we might have when God commands something like this is that he's just like the pagan gods of the world or that he's not going to keep his word. That never seems to cross Abraham's mind. You know what does cross Abraham's mind? We're not exactly told in this passage in great detail, but if you look over to Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see. You'll see what was in Abraham's mind. Hebrews 11 verse 17 says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Get this, verse 19. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead. Listen, I don't know if Abraham had ever heard of a resurrection before. He certainly hadn't seen one. And yet it was more conceivable in Abraham's mind that God would turn that pile of ashes back into a living, breathing young man than it was that God could possibly be just as bad as the pagan gods or that he would go back on his word. After 40 years of walking with this God, after 40 years of faith victories and faith failures and God's rebuke and God's leadership in his life, he has finally come to a point, I can believe anything in this world, I can do anything in this world except believe that God would ever go back on his word or that God would ever sin. Scripture acknowledges that this is a perplexing command that Abraham receives from the Lord, but Abraham demonstrates that this perplexing leadership from God in the lives of his people is okay, and it is good, and it is worth following. And that's the, that's the acknowledgement point about God that we see in this passage. God's leadership is perplexing. But... In the light of God's perplexing leadership, we can lay our lives down at his throne for his service and for his glory. Why? Because what Abraham understood in this passage is what I want us to learn throughout the rest of our time together. God's leadership is perplexing, yes. But, number two, God's character is trustworthy. God's character is trustworthy. Let's look at verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. This is interesting to me. Isaac was big enough probably to overpower this hundred and something year old man. So it appears to me that Isaac is following the faith of his father. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand 
and took the knife to slaughter his son. He doesn't put the boy on the altar and then sit back and hope for something to happen. He's committed. He has set his face to obedience. And he is actually lifting the knife over his son. And verse 11 tells us that at that point, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and you can almost see his hand open and the knife fall to the ground. As Abraham cries out, here I am. He says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. I understand this. God didn't need to learn that. That wasn't the I know part that he was getting at. What he was getting at is that true faith is not just a mental acknowledgement of things that God has said. It is an actual act upon the things that we believe. And Abraham had just demonstrated that faith wasn't one of many things that he was mastered by in his life. It was the thing that had mastered him. And that faith, as it always is, is accompanied by obedience. And he demonstrates that. And God calls off the act. Why? Because it wasn't really his intention to kill the boy all along. It was his intention to reach into the hedge of Abraham's heart and claim what is most important to him and lead him to lay it down at his throne for his service and for his glory. God did not go back on his word. God did not compromise his integrity or his character. In fact, it even goes on, verse 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, Oh, I found a ram. Nope. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Where God calls, He provides. Where God commands, He enables. Where God leads, His word will stand firm. God has demonstrated over and over again, and it comes to a head right here, that His character is trustworthy because He is good and he has good intentions for his people, and he has perfect plans, and, and, and he cannot fail. He is all righteous. And so Abraham, in the midst of the perplexing leadership of God, can lay everything down at his feet. Why? Because the character of God is trustworthy. But then also we see a third point about God that we must understand, and it is this, that the promise of God is unshakable. The promise of God is unbreakable. Look at verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, 
because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. What's going on there? After this ordeal, God reinforces, he reasserts his promise to Abraham, I will give you the offspring. They will be numerous. You will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And I will bless you. Now it says that he's saying all this because Abraham obeyed. But if you look back a couple chapters earlier, when God makes this covenant, it's not a conditional covenant. This promise was secured as certain because of the character of God himself, not because of Abraham's character or Abraham's obedience. So what's going on here? Abraham believed God and that was counted to him as righteousness, Paul says. But the faith that led Abraham to believe and submit to God was a faith that directed how Abraham lived in his life. That's why I say that true faith that is yielded to the Lord, is an obedient faith. It always is. It's a proven faith. God's leadership is perplexing. We don't always, want, we don't always understand why God makes the decisions He does in the lives of His people, but this we know. His character is trustworthy. His promise is unshakable. And finally, his plan is magnificent. His plan is magnificent. This is where, after covering all the verses in this chapter, we now zoom out a little bit and consider something of what this tells us about the future and the future of salvation and the plan of salvation that God has throughout history. When he tells Abraham to take his boy up to the land of Moriah, many scholars, many commentators will point out that this is the place where the temple was built and where Christ would serve as the sacrifice. Now, I can't say that it's the exact place. Moriah is an area. It is a region of mountains. I would like to think it's the exact spot. We're not told that exactly, but it's at least nearby. And it at least helps us to understand that this event is foreshadowing something greater and something more magnificent that is still to come. And what's more, when Isaac gets on that altar and then is delivered from that altar and the ram is put in its place, we are told something about the substitutionary nature of sacrifice. That there was one party that was called to be sacrificed. And then by God's grace and by God's provision alone, there was a substitute sacrificed in its place. That's what happened on that mountain. Some people want to make Isaac a type of Christ here, and I think because of this, we have a problem with that. Isaac didn't die on that altar. The ram did. But it shows us something about the plan of God that he has for salvation for all of his people, for it was in that area many years later when God would go through with sacrificing his one and only son. 
And this time, the Son was the substitute. Because the intended sacrifice, the deserving sacrifice, was you and me. Because of our sin. We are the ones who are guilty before God. We are the ones who deserve to come under the crushing blow of God's fury and wrath. And Christ is the one who bore it in our place. So that all who believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God's leadership in the lives of his people is perplexing because he is after just that. He's after our lives. He's after our hearts. And he knows that if we're honest with ourselves before him, there may be 99 things out of 100 that we are ready and willing to give up to the Lord. But 99 out of 100 is not enough. All 100 belong to Him. And the life of faith is a process by which God takes a machete to that hedge, breaks it down, claims what's inside of it for His own, and teaches us why it's good. And why that is the key to our greatest joy so that we will stop wasting our lives trying to master the things of this world and finding ourselves mastered by its sin, and so that we will instead turn our gaze to the only being in the universe whose character is perfectly trustworthy, to the only one in the universe whose promise can never be shaken, to the only one in the universe whose plan is most glorious and magnificent and say, you can do no better than to lay your life down at my throne for my service, for my glory. And so the call is simple, my friends. Come to him. I know his leadership is perplexing and he will lead you through the valley of shadow of death, but that's just the point. He will lead you through it. He will not leave you. He will carry you through it. Come to Him. His leadership is perplexing. I know. It will be hard sometimes. It will be painful sometimes. But it will always be good. And there is no one, and there is nothing in this world that can give you that testimony and that promise and that assurance other than the Almighty God of Heaven. Whatever's inside that hedge cannot give you that assurance. For some of you, maybe that head, what's inside that hedge is your children. Maybe that's a direct correlation between you and Abraham right here. You have dreams, you have plans, you have wishes for your children, and you dread the day you dread the day when one of those children might come to you and say, I want to give my life as a single missionary in Cameroon to the sick and the poor and the needy. And your retirement plan just got blown up. And God wants to lead you to the point where you can say, with the old song that many of us used to sing, give of your sons to bear the message glorious. Give of your wealth to speed them on their way. Pour out your soul 
for them in prayer victorious, and all you spend, the Savior will repay. Or maybe it's not such a big thing that's within the hedge of your heart. Maybe it's something smaller. Maybe we need to start more basic to to examine our hearts and consider whether or not we have truly laid our lives down at the feet of God. Maybe it's something more simple. Consider this. Where do the people of God factor into your life? Where does the centrality of the Lord's day and the gathering of the saints factor into your life? Forget whether we're we're willing to sacrifice our children for the Lord. Some of us aren't willing to sacrifice an hour of sleep. Some of us aren't willing to use the gifts God has given us for the edifying of the saints. And I think many of us have approached giving our lives to God much like we have giving our stuff to goodwill. There are many things in our closets that we're happy to part with. And when we part with them, we've come part of the way to Christ. My friends, God's work in your life is to take a machete to that hedge and say, come all the way. There is nothing in this world that is worth holding on to in his place. God's leadership is perplexing, I know. But we can and we must follow him. Why? Because his character is trustworthy. His promise is unshakable. His plan is magnificent. And friends, if we will lift our eyes to heaven and see his glory, if we will lift our eyes to his throne and see his greatness and his authority, if we will lift our eyes and consider the promise that he has made, not only to save us, not only to sanctify us, but also to glorify us in eternity future, when we realize that he has us held firmly in his hands and he has called us to a, a, a ministry, a mission, a proclamation mission and a life of service that cannot fail. then we have no other response than to lay our lives down, not in part, but the whole. Every square inch, every molecule at the feet of the throne of God for His glory and for His service. And I want to finish with two simple questions. Number one, have you come to Him? by faith, through the Lord Jesus Christ, unto salvation, with your confidence in Him alone as the substitutionary sacrifice who bore your sin so that you could be saved. I'm asking if you're a Christian. Have you come to that point of saving faith? If not, why not? Today's the day, my friend. We would love to tell you how you can be reconciled to God and at peace with Him. My second question, you think it's going to be, have you laid your life down? It isn't going to be that. I'm going to turn it around a little bit. Christians, this applies to you too. Why haven't you? And why wouldn't you?
Is there somebody in this world whose character is more trustworthy than God's? Is there something in this world that can offer you more than what God has promised and can hold to that promise any more securely than God can? Is there anything in this world that is greater than the glory and greatness of Almighty God in heaven? Then by all means, lay your life down for that, but you know as well as I do that's not true. So, why wouldn't you? Friends, this is the call on my heart. This is the call on your heart. Whatever God says, let's obey. Wherever God calls, let's go. Whatever God demands, let's give. Why would we do anything differently? Why would we think we're better off outside of God's hands than in them? This is the testimony of Abraham's life. It's a faith that matured over many years. And here we're seeing a picture of it. We're seeing the work of God in the lives of His people. It's a perplexing work. But it is a work that we can submit to. We can give into. Why? Because His character is trustworthy. His promise is unshakable. And His plan is magnificent. Have you come all the way to the throne of God and laid your life down there? Why would you do anything else? Let's pray.